issues of property. And what about the economy? What is ownership? Is appropriate? Goods. Properties. Commodification. Ownership. Property. Appropriate. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the second episode of the Appropriate Podcast, the podcast of the Collaborative Research Center Structural Change of Property. My name is Charlotte Domberg, and I will briefly introduce this episode about the future of social rights and the relationship between social rights and social property. This episode is the first part of three episodes that are inspired by the notion of social property as developed by the late French sociologist Robert Castel. The speakers are Silke van Dijk, Steffen Liebig and Markus Kipp. Silke van Dijk and Markus Kipp work in the sub-project Debating the Public Sphere and the Future of the Commons. And Silke van Dijk is also the speaker of the whole Collaborative Research Center. Steffen Liebig works in the sub-project Ownership, Inequality and Class Formation in Socio-Ecological Transformation Conflicts. Silke van Dijk starts off with an introductory talk entitled Social Rights as Property, Thinking with and Beyond Robert Castel. Property is a key institution in capitalist societies. However, within the social science, property relations have been strongly ne neglected beyond Marxist strands of research in the past decades. And this is, and that's especially important for us, is especially true for the sociological research on welfare states and social inequality. Therefore, today we attempt to address this void. Our focus is on ownership, property rights, and the future of social rights. The development of welfare states, especially in the heyday of Fordism in Western Europe and North America, aimed at a partial rehabilitation of non-owners as Robert Castel named it. This was done, as we all know, through labor, social and tenancy law standards, welfare benefits and limitations of the power of private owners, but also <clears throat> through the nationalization of basic services and infrastructures such as education, health, transportation, energy supply or housing. And all, the, all these mechanisms I just uh, described um, have ownership implications. Comparative welfare state research has focused primarily on uh, the question of distribution, thereby neglecting questions of power and disposal. In the wake of the class compromise, welfare state research in its dominant strands became silent about the underlying property regimes. When it addressed property at all, it was primarily about state-owned enterprises, privatization and forms of public-private partnership, but not about social rights and their implications. Anyone who is interested in social rights and welfare states and their institutionalization in the status of the wage worker cannot avoid the work of the French sociologist Robert Castel. In his Chronicle of Wage Labor, he traces the emergence of social rights and takes a look at their increasing erosion since the 1980s. He was concerned with the rights of the propertyless, which is why he attached great importance to placing legal rights at the center of his considerations and distinguished them 
from means-tested social assistance and institutionalized forms of social charity. Here in Jena, we had the great fortune to welcome him several times as a colleague and speaker during the last years of his life. And my colleague Klaus Dörre worked closely with him on the precarization of labor. In view of the oblivion of property in welfare state research, Castell's work is an exception, is a great exception, as he sees social rights, especially in the form of social insurances and public infrastructures as a social property of welfare state citizens. He researched in the tradition of French solidarism, which is unfortunately little received internationally today. This tradition provided a convincing rationale for public goods and social rights, and that makes it very interesting for us. The basic idea is that there is no such thing as pure private property, but that owners are always dependent on social infrastructures and the contribution of many others to whom they therefore owe a share. Robert Castell characterizes social insurances as transfer property and social infrastructures as collective property, both thus form subforms of social property. And just to quote him, um, he writes, how has it been possible to overcome social insecurity and guarantee social security benefits for all or almost all members of modern societies. Strong protective mechanisms were linked to wage labor and a new form of ownership was established and implemented with social property in order to guarantee the rehabilitation of the non-owners." End of quote. Although Castell's work has been widely received, hardly anyone has taken an interest in the property character of social property which is mostly received as synonym for social rights. And one aim of our workshop here is to take social property as property seriously and to discuss whether we are really dealing here with a new form of property that is in a sense transversal to private property, public property or common property. And we also want to think be with and beyond Castell and connect questions of social property with current debates on social rights, self-managed commons, and collective infrastructures. How is our workshop designed? We will first outline in two short 10-minute inputs what questions we are concerned with in our two research projects when it comes to social rights and social infrastructures. Stefan Liebig first goes into more detail about the concept of social property and situates this in the context of the precarization of labor and the change of gender relations. Markus Kipp then discusses whether social, only, uh, whether social ownership is actually a new form of ownership. And since we want to think beyond Castell, Markus also directs our attention to the importance of public infrastructures and shows why the discussion of commons and foundational economy thinking is central for us when it comes to social rights. Then we look forward to the two keynotes by Julie Fraud and Massimo De Angelis, whom I would like to welcome again very warmly. 
Their work has been an inspiration for our research and we are very pleased that they have accepted our invitation to, to discuss with them together. I hand over to my colleague Steffen Liebig, uh, who will elaborate on the concept of social property. As we just have heard, and as the title of this workshop announces, Castell's concept of social property is of interest to us mainly because he conceptualizes social rights as property. We would therefore like to first elaborate a bit more on Castell's concept. Second, we discuss social property within the context of class and against the background of precarization processes that threaten these very same social rights. In doing so, we will also point out some limitations of the concept, as Castell puts it, particularly with respect to the dimension of gender. But let's start from the beginning. In a nutshell, Castells understands social property as a distinct form of property, which he sees as the result of class struggles in Western capitalist societies characterized by welfare state and corporatism. Under these circumstances, social property takes over social security functions for wage earners, which they would have otherwise not be able to afford off due to the lack of private property. Social property, those, fulfills social functions of social and individual security as otherwise, and I quote Castell, previously provided by private property alone. More precisely, according to Castell, social property consists of a whole functional set composed of collective security systems, such as collective agreements, unemployment benefits, etc., social rights, such as labor protection laws, protection against dismissal, etc., and certain additional income sources, such as Christmas bonuses, payments in case of illness, etc. The state itself and the system of industrial relation, those become, a quote again, giantic insurance systems. Wage labor is further transformed into a medium of social integration, and wage workers become social citizens. Underlying to this is a more or less extensive decommodification of wage labor. It is therefore that Castell explicitly speaks of social property as a, quote, different form of property that guarantees a life of social security outside the sphere of private property. Quote end. Indeed, for instance, pension rights in Germany are actually protected as property. According to Castell, social property thus helps to, quote again, to overcome the rigid character of the opposition between owners and non-owners. The existing private economic property relations, however, remain essentially untouched, which is why social property can be understood as an expression of class compromise. Having said that, we now turn towards the critical discussion of Castell's concept, which will also lead over to the topics of today's keynotes. Basically, and as already mentioned, Castell's concept of social property has been received only sporadically. In order to appreciate the full significance of the concept, and at the same time, to point out the necessity for a conceptual and empirical extension, it is worthwhile to address it together with another relevant topic, which is the CIFIF for Castell's work and which has been, in contrast, widely received in Germany and abroad. Namely, and I'm talking about the contemporary diagnoses and studies on precarization. In a narrow sense, 
Precarization aims at the erosion of certain standards of security in the world of labor. In a broader sense, it is understood as a comprehensive uncertainty of living and working conditions. Following Castell, Klaus Dörre and others have distinguished between different zones of integration and disintegration of through wage labor. Accordingly, the zone of integration, the zone of precariousness, and the zone of decoupling can be distinguished. Precarity thereby limits the ability of those affected to plan a long-term and rational life. However, it is important to emphasize that precarity is a social process and that its effects are not limited to those who are already precariously employed. In that sense, social property may work against precarious working and living conditions and, under certain circumstances, oppose a comprehensive precarization process. At this point, a weakness of the concept of social property becomes obvious. While Castell and others have examined and conceived precarization processes in the temporary dynamic way, this is still large, largely lacking for the rather static concept of social property. For this, different forms of social property would have been to be distinguished, to which most likely specific groups of employees have specific access or are included. Excluded, sorry. Um, this also raises questions for empirical research and operationalization of social property. For the moment, it is enough to note that social property is not, not, is not distributed equally across wage earner. Therefore, different volumes and forms of social property may form segmented social groups and on a larger scale, even constitute different social classes. In addition, it needs to be asked how social property develops over time and how this is related to social power relation. This is of particular importance in times of change, especially in crisis laden transformation processes as we experience them today, not only in the view of the ecological crisis, new risk of precarization arise. Possibly, and according to one of our research tethers, different configuration of social property could be a specific factor in how individuals and social classes behave in these processes. More specifically spoken, how does the whole set of social properties change within transformation and against the backdrop of precarization processes? Finally, what impact does this have on collective and potentially class-based action? However, it is striking that social property, as Castell understands it, remains functionally within the capitalist logic. The limitation of the concept are those closely linked to the system of wage labor. In this context, it is important to ask what extent in or exclusions of the wage labor system, for instance, related to gender or class, uh, uh, to gender or race, are reinforced by the possibly exclusive or denied access to social property. In this respect, social property, as described by Castell, is closely linked to and in many ways limited to wage labor, while other forms, for example, reproductive work, do not provide the same amount of social security. These limitation and blind spots need to be taken into account for further research. Furthermore, and in conclusion, it can be said that a closer link between the outlined research programs, social property on the one hand, and its relation to processes of precarization and class on the other hand, is still missing or only rudimentary existent. And with that, I hand over to um, Marcus Kipp. 
as Stefan uh, already mentioned, uh, Castell's uh, social property has considerable gender-specific blind spots and its linking of social rights with employment status has become incrementally decoupled in the context of growing precariousness. Thinking with and beyond Castell means integrating these dynamics into a revised notion of social property. I would like to introduce two further aspects that invite reflection on developing Castell social property further or beyond. One, what is the status of property in social property, particularly in relation to the power of disposal and management? And two, what role does public infrastructure play in social property? So first, we propose to think beyond Castell by taking the notion of property in social property seriously and ask for its implications. Castell's work has been widely received not only in France, but also internationally. This is particularly true of his seminal work, Les Métamorphoses de la Question Sociale, and his research on precarious work. In this reception, social property is mostly taken synonymously for social rights. Remarkably, however, it seems that in the international discussion, it is only Etienne Balibar in his book Equal Liberty hinting at this point. With our research in the Collaborative Research Center on the Structural Change of Property, we want to close this astonishing gap and take social property serious as property. Let us take a look at the relationship between social property and private property in Castell's work. Although social property relativizes the importance of private property and creates an alternative for the property-less with social rights, he, Castell, does not understand social property as an attack on private property, quite the opposite. In the spirit of class compromise, Castell emphasizes the public policy innovation of social property in the late 19th century by creating social security without having to touch real estate, land, or industrial property. Castell remains unclear as to whether social property is a new form of property or a non-proprietary replacement of private property that is legally guaranteed on the basis of social status, the status of the wage worker. I'm quoting from Castell. It is the construction of an analog of private property, in other words, of making available to non-property owners a type of asset that was not the direct possession of a private holding or patrimony, but a right of access to collective goods and services." Unquote. It remains unclear whether we deal with a new form of property or the right of access here. This is because Castell has not spelled out the question of what constitutes property in social property. Against this background, we can thus ask, what are the functions social rights in the form of social insurance and access to public infrastructures need to have in order to justify speaking of property? If property means the regulated power of disposal of property subjects over property objects, including the right to exclude others, we need to take a closer look at what power of disposal actually means. We can distinguish different rights in relation to a property object or resource that regulates the social relation between owners and others. These rights include the access to and use of the resource, 
its management and administration, including the control of the conditions of reproduction, and the exclusion of others, as well as the transfer to others through sale, donation, foundation, or inheritance. Consider this, what do welfare state citizens dispose of in social property? What rights do they have? For Castel, the answer is obvious, at least for social insurances. The subjects dispose of pensions or unemployment benefits, for example, by virtue of social law, which creates security and the ability to plan for the future. Alike, for example, means-tested benefits, which Castel problematizes as charity. Therefore, social property implies access and use rights. However, given the impossibility of transferring and inheriting these rights, social property lacks those transfer rights, which are fundamental to liberal property theory. Even more important from our perspective, social property lacks management and administration rights, socially uh, lacks those rights. So socially insured persons are pure recipients of the benefits without any direct influence on the conditions, their control and design. Given this background, it could be said that Castel's social property fulfills just one function of private property, and that the property less receive reliable access to resources on the basis of their, well, wage labor status. However, they lack an encompassing power of disposal so that the supposed social property appears merely as an institution of distribution and not a new form of property. What would it mean if social security recipients were not only beneficiaries, but if they had management and administration rights? We want to think beyond Castel in this direction of co-production and democratization. The idea of the unity of access, use, and self-management is key to commons and cooperatives. What about introducing this unity also in social property as a democratization of public social policy? To discuss such questions of commons and social rights, we have invited our colleague Massimo De Angelis, whose work on commons and common goods as social systems is crucial to our research. Our second proposal, thinking with and beyond Castel, is to take his perspective on public infrastructures more serious than he does himself. Specifically, when talking about public infrastructures, we address such crucial areas as energy and water supply, mobility, education, health and care, and cultural services. Although Castel always names public infrastructures as one strand of uh, social property, which he calls collective property, his elaborated analysis only referred to social insurances, the transfer property. We want to explore this relationship between social insurance and public infrastructure in greater depth. In several instances, we can think of um, uh, realizing social rights for individuals through both social insurance payments or public infrastructure. And in fact, in conjunction, social insurance and public infrastructure are key factors for a perspective on the residual income of citizens, that is the income that households have available after the costs of housing, transport and utility bills have been paid. We shall hear more about the important perspective on residual income from Julie Fraud in a moment. 
When looking at the relationship between social insurance and public infrastructure, an interesting question arises, which one is the proper means to realize social rights in, and in what circumstance or condition? What considerations or criteria apply? Castell does not delve into this issue, but we would like to address this omission since it allows us to consider two things. One, public alternatives to private property and two, social rights as independent from individual employment status. Decades of privatization and social struggles for remunicipalization show how contested this issue of public infrastructure is. In terms of property relations, the question is how the pro public property of the infrastructures with the state as the owner relates to Castell's idea of collective property with the citizens as owner. Thinking about public infrastructure as collective property, again, raises the question of who has the power to design and control them and ultimately what a democratization and socialization of infrastructures would look like and how it could be implemented. Ongoing debates about universal basic services, infrastructure, socialism, and the perspectives of a foundational economy are heading in this direction. What basic goods and services should be available to all inhabitants, regardless of their individual status? For this reason, we are very pleased to have Julie Froud from the Foundational Economy Collective as our guest today to discuss collective infrastructures and property relations with her. So this was a recording from the keynote event of the workshop The Future of Social Rights, Social Property, Commons and the Foundational Economy that took place at the University of Jena on March 3rd, 2022. The workshop was held as part of the Collaborative Research Center Structural Change of Property. There are two more topic-related episodes. In the second episode, Julie Froud from the University of Manchester will speak about Rethinking the Foundational Economy and Collective Infrastructures. In the third episode, Massimo De Angelis from the University of East London will talk about property, commons and the common. Tune in and follow us on Spotify and Twitter or visit the website of the Collaborative Research Center Structural Change of Property. Appropriate. Diese Podcast-Reihe entsteht im Rahmen des Sonderforschungsbereichs Transregio 294 Strukturwandel des Eigentums und wird gefördert durch die Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft DFG unter der Fördernummer SFB TRR 294-1-424-638-267.